are glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Matthew chapter 5. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1 so we can take in all of these Beatitudes. And uh, you will find in a moment when you read the Beatitudes that the perspective of Jesus Christ is entirely different than the perspective of this world. He doesn't look at things at all uh, the same way the world does because we are not as God. Our thoughts are not as His thoughts and our ways are not as His ways. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, He went up into a mountain. And when He was set, His disciples came unto Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, and these two go together, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. The next three words are key, for my sake. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In essence, you know what the Lord Jesus is saying? If you are treated badly because you are so closely identified with me, you have a badge of honor. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Someone says, that verse isn't very true. I live godly in Christ Jesus and I've never suffered persecution. And you step back just a minute. The Bible says, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Persecution doesn't mean you have your head lobbed off. Persecution comes in many forms. Persecution can be mockery. It can be the reviling he's talking about. People saying, accusing you of things that aren't true. I know enough people in this room to know that if some of you, some of you have suffered for being loyal to the Savior. You've been called things. You've been accused of being things that you're not simply because you say, the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior. I know His will for my life and I'm going to do that and you've received accusations and so forth. The Lord Jesus knew this. He said if the world hated him, they would also hate us. And he's preparing us for how to respond to a world that's against him. And so then, we now if you go to Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, we find the example of people who understood. By the way, can I just throw this in here? I've done this a couple of times on the Beatitudes. There are some people that say the Beatitudes are not applicable to Christians in a practical way because of the dispensation of time they were given in. Jesus was giving ideals, not instructions. That's a bunch of nonsense. Can I just say that? That is a bunch of nonsense. And here's why. When you look at the New Testament, people who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and how they lived their lives, they lived in response to what Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 5. They lived in, in exact response to the commandments and the instructions he gave. He said this, if you hear what he has to say, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his, what Jesus did is he took the law and he unfolded it and, and interpreted the spirit of that law and said, this is what the law says, but I am the author. Here's what it means. Amen? And so you want a good idea of how to take the law, of the Old Testament law, and have it applied practically to you as a believer in Jesus Christ, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You get a pretty good picture. 
Amen? And so then, uh, here in Acts chapter 5, you have disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ literally obeying the commandment of Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12 that when they're persecuted, instead of grumbling, they're going to rejoice. And I'm, let me just put this in perspective this morning. We'll focus on the voices in the chapter, but how many of us, and I didn't say how many of you, how many of us this past year, or year and a half, have been guilty of saying, it is not right. Christians should be treated better than we are. I don't know if I use those words, but we get a bad attitude about a world that hates God treating us like they treat Him. Are you with me? And look, I believe we ought to pray for freedom. I believe we ought to pray for leaders that will continue to give the freedom to do what we're doing this morning. But we should, number one, not be shocked when a lost world who hates the Bible and hates the God of the Bible and hates the Creator and hates the Savior because He has revealed their sin and wants to save them, but they are rejecting that, get upset at His people. Our Lord told us that would happen. And I'm afraid instead of we can say, well, we want to preserve freedom for the furtherance of the gospel when sometimes what we want to do is we just want to be liked by people. Amen? Maybe I'm just preaching to me this morning. It's an absolute fact that many times we're just upset because we were being treated when the Lord said, this is going to happen. Now, I believe, we, again, we ought to, First Timothy chapter 2, pray for those that are in authority over us that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and honesty. But what about when that's not the way we're being treated? What about when we're being persecuted? I've recently had occasion for someone to say, ah, I'm very persecuted and there's a lot of bitterness there. God never intended us to get bitter over being treated badly. Amen? The fact of the matter is, when you and I are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Lord says, you've got a reason to be happy. Because when you are treated that way for my sake, you will be rewarded. And you can get real excited because you've got a paycheck coming. <laughs> Amen? In eternity. And so then Acts chapter 5. What we're going to do, if you would, um, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 32. I told you last night I would forget already. I'm not going to have you stand now, but you remind me tonight. We'll do that. We're already into our text. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. We'll read verses 12 through 32 of Acts 5 to give us the context of what's going on here in, in Jerusalem. There's the church at Jerusalem. The apostles are there. They've been preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ like he told them. By this point, I'll just give you a little bit of history. In Acts chapter 5, this new church in Jerusalem has grown from 120, that's Acts chapter 1, to over 10,000 by Acts chapter 5. Thousands of people have gotten saved as the gospel, the message that Jesus had been crucified, but is actually alive. He's risen from the dead and that He is the Messiah, the Savior. God had blessed that message and confirmed it. We'll say some things about that so that thousands of people were repenting, believing on Christ, getting saved, and it has the religious leadership upset. And we'll, we're kind of coming in on that. So the church of Jerusalem has gone through a number of difficulties they have uh, had some light persecution, if they would. The preachers have been jailed um, in Acts chapter 5. They've had some internal troubles. They had a couple of members that died because they lied to God, right? And so that's what the church has been going through. But here in Acts chapter 5, after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, now here's what's going on, chapter, 12, or chapter 5, verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all uh, with one accord in Solomon's porch and... Of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And the believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow them. 
There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning, and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereinto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the man whom ye put in prison, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple, and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things and so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. Verse 33 says, When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Do you see a theme, especially you folks who have been listening to these messages since Thursday night? God communicates something to man And then Satan goes to work to thwart what God says. That has been going on ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. God has been going on before they fell. God speaks and Satan goes to work to discredit and undermine what God says and to silence God. For all these thousands of years of human history, Satan, who is God's creation, has tried to silence God. There's two primary voices in this world, and then out of that there come many tools uh, of those voices. Put yourself in Jerusalem at this time, here in Acts chapter 5, and you're kind of hearing what's going on in your city. You've heard about this movement that started up, these Jesus people, if you would, these Nazarenes, they called many of them. By Antioch in Acts 11, they called them Christians. They didn't want to call them. This man Jesus had come. It was a claim that he was the son of God. The religious leadership and the Roman rulership had killed him, but it was clearly confirmed that he had come out of the grave three days later. That is a historical fact, not just a religious opinion. He came out of the grave. You're living in Jerusalem, and you hear this rumor that this man Jesus, who they crucified on Golgotha, has actually come alive, and you're like, is it true? And they say there are more than 500 eyewitnesses that have seen him after his death and burial. Over 500 people have verbal eyewitness. They'll tell you they saw him. It's not just the apostles. Many have communicated with him. He was alive for 40 days. And so that's what's being preached. 
that this is clearly not just another fanatic, not just another Judaizer trying to overthrow the Roman government. This is actually the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God working with God's church begins to convince people it's true. The voice that we're hearing that Jesus is the Son of God is not just a myth. It's true. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people are repenting. And now what Annas and Caiaphas tried to stop 50, 60 days ago is more alive than it's ever been. I believe they're sitting there saying, we are in so much trouble. If this uprising comes up, we will lose our positions as religious leaders. Rome will cut us off. we got to stop this thing. See, God's voice was speaking, not at this time. Jesus, the Son of God, not he's no longer there to preach. But the Holy Spirit of God, who, who he sent in Acts chapter 2, is moving God's people to preach the truth. And they're doing it. And it's they, they filled a city with their doctrine. You know what that is? That's the voice of God. The doctrine of Jesus Christ had flooded the city of Jerusalem. And so there, that's the first voice we're going to see, and that is the voice of illumination. Through the preaching of the apostles and the Christians in the church at Jerusalem, it was getting, it was giving light to see, oh, this Jesus truly was and is the Son of God. It was showing that God had provided salvation and that it wasn't through the religious system of the Jews. But it was through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And as that was being revealed, the high priest is seeing his own career and his religion and his power unravel. And he says, no, 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 no. We'll get to his voice in a minute. But there's a voice of illumination. By that, I want to, just, I want to put this in context. By the time we come to Acts chapter 5, we started reading our text about some miracles that took place. But do you realize those miracles were nothing more than the voice of God? God had already promised that the early apostles, he would give signs to them to confirm that what they were saying was true. The purpose of the miracles that the apostles did was not so the whole city would not have any sick people in it. God cares about the sick. But he said, I'll give signs to confirm that the message they're preaching is true. Meaning, what was important was not the signs and miracles. What was important was the message. The message. And so God says, I I want to confirm that these men are telling the truth. So he gave them miracle-working power to do that. So there's a few things about this illuminating voice, this preaching of the gospel. These men were coming and their message. Remember, there is no voice without signification. The message of the apostles and the message of the early church and that that church in Jerusalem was crystal clear. Turn back a page or two to Acts chapter 4. We're talking about the voice of illumination. By that, I'm talking about the voice of God, God speaking through the lives of people he had saved, speaking through uh, the, 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 the people that were indwelt by his Holy Spirit, speaking through the local church. I had a thought this morning. Bear with me as I hit a rabbit trail. What is the church called? The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, you help me this morning. I've been thinking in a very practical way. What's happened is Satan has worked very hard. So the pillar and the ground of the truth, it's a voice for God. The church is supposed to be sounding forth the word of God. And it's supposed to be a place you can go and know we can trust what we hear. And I believe our adversary has been working very hard to discredit the voice of God. But today, if you want to know the truth, where do you turn? I want to know the truth about where do you turn? It's two clicks or a push of a button. You can go to Google, Wikipedia, or Facebook, and you can get fact checkers who will tell you what the real truth is. And we, we kind of chuckle. But friend, that's the reality this morning. 
There are untold thousands of people who have more confidence in a news anchor on a television or in a news feed on a social media line or in Google than they do in that Bible right there. Meaning there there are competing voices with this book. And they're loud today. And if you go to those sources, you'll get any number of ideas about what might be true. But the one thing they agree on is that this isn't true. Am I right? There's broad agreement among the world that the Bible can't be trusted. Now, you can trust this source and you can trust this scientist. And I'm all for science if that's what it is. But if you're going to make something up and change facts to support what you just made up, you are no scientist. You're a liar. Amen? I told you I was going to get on a rabbit trail for a minute. When God speaks, listen, when God speaks, he confirms that what he says is truth. So, for instance, God created us. But I'll be honest with you. I think if he didn't tell us, we might not know where we came from. We weren't there at creation, were we? So God saw fit to record the accounts of creation through the hand of Moses in a Bible. But you know what else he did? He put the facts of that in your conscience. He programmed your conscience to know that you didn't just poof, show up. You were created by a creator. God has put two or three, or if you look around you, 10,000 witnesses to tell you he made you. If you don't believe that God created you today, you've got your head into your shoulders in the sand. God has put so many witnesses in our conscience and in what we... You know why part of the reason he gave you two eyes, two ears? is so you could realize he made you. He created things. You've got to be an absolute fool. I use that word because God does to say, no, we just happened. We weren't created. I mean, you have to be completely nuts. The Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Now, God has given as much validation to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he has to the truth of creation. He has gone to great lengths to confirm so that the witness he gave of his son being alive from the dead could withstand 2,000 years of criticism and still stand as an absolute fact this morning. I'm not preaching to you today myth or hope or ideology, false hope. We are preaching this morning facts, what they were preaching 2,000 years ago. And to top it off, God said, I and myself am going to come and dwell inside of the people that believe on me to confirm that what they're saying is true. I believe the Spirit of God is still very actively at work today to confirm in the hearts of people that the message of the gospel is true, a message that is abundantly clear. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, it's in the context of this, a man that was lame, he couldn't walk, was lying at the gate of the temple. And Peter and John come, and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they heal the man. And a great notable miracle, the Bible calls it, took place. No one could, could dismiss what happened. It was so miraculous, and this man was so known to lay in the, in the gate begging, that when he got healed, when the opponents tried to dismantle the miracle, they couldn't. And so Peter from that says, now the reason the miracle happened was yes to give him his legs back, but to give a platform from which to preach about Jesus Christ. So that's what he does. Acts chapter 4 verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. 
This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Now listen to verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Is that clear? Acts 4.12 was one of the most clear and concise verses in our entire Bible. What is being said is you can try to be saved from your sins some other way, but only Jesus Christ, who had the power to heal this man of his, of his lame legs, can heal you of your sin. There's no other way. The illuminating voice of God makes it very clear. You have no hope to stand before God when you leave this life outside of Jesus Christ delivering you. None. No one can save you from your own sin. No one can save you from the wrath of God. No one can save you from the flames of hell other than Jesus Christ who was crucified by man and raised from the dead. Some say, that, that, that story, boy, I don't know. That's hard to believe. I mean, you, the Bible says he was born of a virgin. Don't we know that's impossible? Of course it's impossible. It was a miracle. And if God who created the universe cannot overcome the rules of the universe, then he didn't make him in the first place. God is a miracle-working God. Some say, you realize people don't come alive from the dead? Of course they don't. But Jesus is God, and he did. And the point would be this. The illuminating voice of God is abundantly clear. I don't think anybody was wondering, what does Peter mean? He says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, nor by men we must be saved. And he also said that we crucified him. What does he mean? You reckon they were confused? <laughs> I don't think so. When we say this morning, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You know what we're saying? We are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Even though it happened 2,000 years ago, God in his foreknowledge saw my sin and said, there's got to be a payment made for that man. And Jesus Christ was punished for my sins. Meaning, listen this morning, you and I are personally accountable and responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Even though we weren't there physically, our sins are why he had to go. We must own that. I know of a lot of people, I've met a lot of people that in general believe the facts surrounding the death of Jesus Christ and resurrection, but they've never believed that they were worthy of what he took on that cross that they are personally accountable for his stripes and his wounding, that that was shed for me personally. The Apostle Paul believed it. He wasn't there in person, Galatians 2.20. He said, Christ died for me, that's what he said. So my point this morning is the voice of God through the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John and the other believers there was abundantly clear. There was clarity in his voice. What they were saying is you crucified not just some man, not just some fanatic a few days ago. You crucified God's son and God allowed you. And now he's come back from the dead. And unless you change your heart toward him, the heart that said, I want him dead on a cross must change to say, I have offended God. Yes, I've offended God by breaking his rules. But the greatest offense of all is I turned against his son. There are those today. Listen closely. Say, which is worse? Someone committing adultery? There are men today who've never committed adultery. They've never robbed a bank. They've never shot somebody. My my goodness, they maybe have never even stolen something. But they believe something like this. I don't believe the record about Jesus Christ in the Bible. That's a man's book written by men. It's a nice story that makes people feel better, but I've been able to be good without Jesus. They're the same kind of men that put nails in his hands 2,000 years ago. What is more wicked than wanting God's son dead because he makes you look like you are? (laughs) You with me? 
Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Therefore, He illuminates and shows what we really are and that we need Him to save us. It's offensive to our pride, but it's the truth. And so the voice of God is illuminating, and it was here in Acts 4 and 5 that through the preaching of Jesus Christ, it became abundantly clear that every person is equally in need of salvation, and that salvation, forgiveness, and deliverance from sin is only in Jesus Christ alone. Back in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, Jesus had clearly commanded his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Luke 24, in uh, verses 46 through 48, he said that repentance and remission of sins was to be preached in his name among all nations, and that ye are witnesses of these things. They were obeying, and so they were his voice, and it was a clear message coming from them that people needed to turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins, and only he could save them. The confirmation of this voice came through the signs and the miracles that were wrought. God made sure that what they were preaching was validated as not just man's opinion, but the message from heaven. So then verse 13 of Acts 4 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Meaning they knew they'd been with this man. It's true. And behold, the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Peter's just preached, this man is walking through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's alive and it's his power that gave this man life. And it's he you must turn to by faith. It's he that you crucified. And the Bible says that that message was so confirmed, there was nothing that could be said in opposition to it. Meaning God's word was so clear, it created silence. Now that's uncommon, but it did. In Acts 5, what we read earlier, uh, the miracles that took place, Acts 5, 12 through 16, as I said earlier, that was all about confirming that what was being preached by the voice of God through his people was truth. Let me read very quickly Mark 16, verse 20, where the Bible explains why the signs and the miracles were given. I referenced it, but I want to read it. Mark 16, verse 20. And they went forth, talking about the disciples, and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. The world acts today like the gospel is still up for debate, like it might not be true. What a bunch of nonsense. The, the truth that Jesus is God's son, that he literally died in place of every man and raised from the dead has been so confirmed that to challenge that today is like challenging that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It is that you say it's not that clear. When, when it comes to what God has done in this world, it is that clear. God has not only given his word, he's confirmed it. Let me say this. He's done something better than miracles. The Bible says he gave us a more sure word of prophecy person that has a Bible today and says, but I'm still not sure how to be saved, either is not heard clearly from the Bible or not believed what the Bible says. Amen? The Bible is abundantly clear what must be done for you to be made right with God. That is, you must come to the one who died for you and put your humble faith in him to save you from your sin. And then he will. So my point is this. The voice of God, that illuminating voice was clear, it was confirmed, and it was convicting. You know, when God confirms that what's being preached is true, that's when it gets convicting. By convicting mean, I realize this applies to me personally. Look at Acts chapter 5. After Peter opens his mouth and preaches boldly in verses 29 uh, down through verse 33, it says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, They tell them, You quit preaching about this Jesus who raised from the dead. Okay? Uh, he says, um, Let me back up to verse 28. He says, Saying, This is the high priest, Did not we straightly command you? 
that ye should not teach in this name. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to do what? Bring this man's blood upon us. Now, pause with me, especially those of you who know your Bibles very well. Should that be a problem? Did they not say his blood be on us? Isn't that what they said? His blood be on us. We don't worry about it. We're not concerned about who he is. Away with this man. He's going to ruin our political standing. He's going to bring the Roman wrath on us. No, let his blood be on us. We're not concerned about him being the king of the Jews. Well, then why is he worried about it now? Because God is making clear, you actually did crucify my son. You're guilty of the blood. You're trying to bring the blood of Jesus on us. This is the same person that led Jesus' trial. Same man. Of course he's trying to... Why was the Apostle Peter trying to bring the blood of Jesus on these men? Meaning the guilt of his death. Because it was true. (laughs) It was true. And it cut to the heart, the Bible says. Verse 29, Then Peter and the other disciples answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Meaning you're telling us to disobey God. And you put us in a position of choosing to obey you or God. We've got to obey God. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost. That's the confirmation we just talked about. Whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart, meaning it was convicting, and took counsel to slay them. Now, when we come under the conviction of God's voice, we'll do one of two things. We'll either do like Joseph did and say, I'm going to believe God's voice and I'm going to submit to it, or we will seek to silence it. What Herod did, we preached about last night. Caiaphas, the high priest here, he decides, we're going to silence this voice. So the voice of illumination, the voice of God, was clear. It was confirmed. It was convicting. Secondly, we've seen already throughout this the voice of indignation in Acts 4.18. I'm going to move quicker now, so stay with me. Acts 4.18, uh, the high priest and those of his council, they called them and commanded, talking about the apostles, commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And then Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Then the high priest rose up and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Let me put it to you this way. When you're an individual that thinks, I am in and of myself a pretty good person, I think that um, the creator of the universe would have no problem welcoming me in his presence because I'm basically I'm good like he is. And then someone comes along and says, no, you're no better than the guy sitting on death row. You both are in the same situation with God, and unless you repent and acknowledge that you deserve God's judgment... You're going to be judged. Jesus Christ came to save you, but you've got to believe on him. You might get filled with indignation when someone busts your bubble and says you're not good. And the high priest is a very proud man. And what happens is, is under the preaching of the word of God, the illuminating voice of God, he realizes what that voice is revealing. You are guilty before God of crucifying his son. And God's holding you accountable. And what he thought was, no, nobody's going to do that to me. So he has indignation. Uh, You've watched people go from curiosity over the gospel to frustration to, I don't ever want to hear that again. Right? That's what happened here is a voice of indignation. And so the objective was, verses 15 through 17 of Acts 4, was to stop the preaching. They didn't want to hear any more about Jesus. It it revealed their guilt and their need for forgiveness. Uh, Acts 4.15, but when they'd commanded them to go outside out of the council, 
they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done, meaning the message they're preaching is confirmed to be true, so by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. What are they trying to do? Silence that voice. That's their objective. How were they going to go about doing that? The operation of that was, first of all, you threatened them. That didn't work. So then they put them in prison. That didn't work. So they beat them and said, we're going to kill them. <laughs> Let me say this. Don't get, if you're a Christian this morning, don't get confused. Don't get all sucked in, all, into all kinds of conspiracy theories. The God of this world and those who belong to him want to do one thing when it comes to the gospel. Shut it up. They want that silenced. And they can do that a number of ways. I believe Satan had tried to silence this witness by corrupting the church from the inside. Getting sin with Ananias and Sapphira in the church. That will silence a church. Amen? But God dealt with that, got sin out of the church so that the testimony became stronger, not weaker. And so the testimony that, you know what, you know what the greatest testimony to a lost and dying world today is that Jesus Christ is alive, a truly godly life. Nothing testifies, because look, nobody can live that life outside of Jesus Christ. So when a life is truly honest and truly godly, you know what it does? It confirms that the gospel actually is true. And so you know what Satan does? If I can corrupt your life, I'll make it look like the gospel is no better than any other message. But if that doesn't work, then what we have to do is start saying, you know what, you can't preach that here and you can't preach it. It's why the gospel preaching is outlawed in places all over the world today. Satan wants to silence that voice. That's the objective. And so what the first goal to silencing this voice with the people in Jerusalem was, let's by force make it stop. That's the voice of indignation. There's a third voice here that I think is more dangerous than the voice of indignation. So we've got the voice of illumination. God has spoken. Jesus Christ is my son. He was crucified. He's alive from the dead. And only through him can you have forgiveness. You need to repent toward God and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the indignant ones said, we need to stop this by force, imprison them, silence them. Well, they put him in prison and the angel let him out. Now what do you do? Satan provides a third voice. And I think this will go together and dovetail with the Sunday school lesson this morning. Acts chapter 5, verse 33. So now when these men have been cut to the heart, a very intelligent man speaks up. Verse 33, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For, and I've circled in my Bible the next word, if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But, in verse 39, if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. Lest happily we, uh, ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, when they'd called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What happened here? He said, I'm going to silence the voice another way. What I'm going to do is I'm not, I'm going to be more diplomatic. I'm not going to throw them in prison. That doesn't work. I'm not going to talk about killing them. I'm just going to act like we don't know if what they're saying is true or not. If it's of men, 
then it'll go away. Many people have commended Gamaliel and say, oh, what a wise man. He made peace. No, he didn't believe in truth. How many of us know that Gamaliel had enough information in front of him to know that what he was hearing preached from these men was true? Then why is he using the word if? If you've heard the gospel preached and you say, if Jesus is really the way to heaven, that's a problem. There's no if about it. He is. And if you reject him, you will perish. Period. So how do you know that's your opinion? It's not my opinion. It's the word of God. He's taken 2,000 years to confirm that that's his word. He gave us a Bible that men have burned, banned, outlawed, compromised it, counterfeited it, and it still stands and still is as clear as it's ever been. And Gamaliel says, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, he's not going to silence them by outside force. He's going to silence them not by making the apostles stop speaking, but by giving the people that he's speaking to a means to cut them off. I'm going to give you a little pill that will say nobody knows for sure if these men are God from not, if they're from God or not. So the best thing for you to do is just leave them alone. Don't believe them, but don't persecute them. Just draw back. Most Americans take this approach to the gospel. Well, I'm not against Christianity. And if you people want to believe that, that's fine for you. But we don't know if it's true or not. Now, I'm not willing to persecute you. We don't want to be like the Arabs. We don't want to be like the Muslims and persecute. But, but we're not going to believe you either. So what we're going to do is we're just going to stay away from you people. <laughs> we're just going to withdraw. Gamaliel is a voice of what? We've seen the voice of illumination. That's the voice of God. The voice of indignation. That's those who hate what they're hearing and are open about it. This is a voice of indifference. You know, I'm not going to believe it even though it's provable true. There was miracle. I mean, ask them, what else did they need to prove that what they were hearing preached was true? I know. Maybe you can sit back and say this. If what these people are, are preaching is true, and if Jesus is really alive, maybe we could see them do miracles like he did. Okay, that happened. Well, maybe, uh, maybe others could come and we could see the power that he demonstrated while he was on earth demonstrated through these men. He did it all. Did Gamaliel know that the man was healed in Acts chapter 3? Did he know that? Did he know these men were in prison and walked out without a door being opened? Then why is he saying if? Because he is as indignant against the gospel as the high priest is. But he's a man of reputation and needs to save face. I don't want to look like a persecutor. And just in case what they're saying is true, I wouldn't want to get in trouble with God. Friend, that's the same approach Pilate took. Well, I'm not going to say kill him because I want him to, but because I want to keep my position in this world... I'm going to tell you, go ahead and kill him and his blood be on your hands. Huh? And listen, there's many people, that's the way they're approaching the gospel. I respect those of you who believe it, but I'm just not convinced. Why not? Why not? God has, has, has made it, a, I believe this, God's Holy Spirit confirms in a heart what you're hearing from that book is true. True. So the counsel of this voice of indifference was refrain. Don't join them. Don't oppose them. Just refrain. Number two, the conclusion that he came to was indecision. Well, they might be of men. They might be of God. So the best thing to do is just don't decide that they're of God or of men. Here's what happens is we'll know in the future. You know what he he led them to? Delay. Don't make a decision today about how you're going to respond to the gospel they're preaching. Give it some time to prove whether or not it's true. And in so doing, he numbed their senses 
it would have been better for the indignation to be there than the indifference. That's what Jesus preached in Revelation chapter 3. Hot or cold, not lukewarm. And Gamaliel preached, there was a voice of indifference that said, you know what, you don't have to decide today if what you're hearing is true or not. You don't have to submit to it. You can always keep in the back of your mind, maybe it's not true. Maybe it's not true. If God created the heaven and the earth, if Jesus is really the Son of God, if the Bible is true, you know what that is? That's nothing but an indifference excuse when we already know what the truth is. To say, you know what, I'm not going to make a decision of, of rejection or of submission today. I'm just going to withdraw. I'm just going to pull back. And so then the counsel of this voice of indifference was refrain from them. The conclusion was don't make any decision. Don't decide that it's true. Don't decide that it's false. You know what? He was a postmodernist way back then. There's no absolute truth. We don't know for sure if Jesus is the Son of God. He might be. He may not be. Their message may be true and it may be false. Friend, that's not so. If what I'm Listen here. If, if Jesus Christ is not truly the Son of God and if he's not the only way of salvation, don't ever come back to this church. Why should you come hear a man every Sunday lie to you to try to manipulate your mind? But if he is... Submit to Him as your Savior. Submit to His authority and live your whole heart by faith in Him. None of this in-between business. Amen? Amen. That's the way it is. And so then the voice of indifference called for do nothing. Don't persecute Him. Uh, Don't join Him. Don't believe Him. And so He constrained them. By the way, you know what? He had a lot more success with the masses than the high priest did. The Bible says Gamaliel told this advice, and the Bible says in verse 40, and to him they agreed. Now, I'm glad he had a pupil that wasn't like him. He had a pupil named Saul. And Saul says, I'm either against that stuff or I'm for it. And God broke Saul, who was against it, and turned him for it. (laughs) Amen? I believe if Saul had learned to be like his teacher, Saul would have never become Paul and be in hell today. But instead, when Saul could see the truth, he said, what I want is truth. And when Jesus Christ confronted him with the truth, he said, I've been wrong. I have been opposing God himself. Oh, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Acts chapter 9. Finally, we come to the voice of integrity, which is why we were in Matthew 5. Look at verses 41 and 42. So these men have been told through indignance, shut up, don't say anymore. They've been told through indifference, even if you do say something, we're not going to believe you. Right? Is that not what the Christians have been told? You preach. So maybe, maybe the church in Jerusalem could have said, you know, our best days are behind us. We had a time when people believing the truth, but we've had so much opposition to the indignation of the high priest that we're tired of being persecuted. And now Gamaliel is so successful in convincing people you don't have to believe it or reject it. Just leave it alone. You can be indecisive, and that's the right position. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. The leadership could have said, man, we are living in a time where even when you speak the truth, people don't believe it. Now's not a time for preaching the gospel. Those days are behind us. Let's just go and live the best little peaceful life we can. No, Acts 5.41. The Bible says in verse 40, And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them. That doesn't sound like that's withdrawing, does it you, and forbearing? (laughs) So did, did Gamaliel really change their heart? No, they still are opposing the truth. And beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They did what? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. said, we are so glad that he trusted us enough to represent him that we were able to stand faithful enough to him to suffer in his place and for his sake. 
What an honor that the world would treat us like they treated our master. What an honor. Look, it, it is no badge of honor when the world thinks we're so much like them that they can't tell the difference between us and them. That is a badge of shame. But when we are so much like our Savior that the world responds to us like they do to Him, that is to say, oh, that God would allow me to serve Him in that manner. It's like an army ranger coming home from combat with a purple heart, saying, you know what, I love my country enough to take a bullet for her, and I, I, I count it an honor to have suffered for something that I believe is worth suffering for. Right? And that's what they did. They rejoiced that they had been able to stand faithful enough to Christ that it actually cost them something. What kind of a marriage would it be if you say, I've been married to my wife, or we've been married 21 years. 21 years, and to be honest with you, it's not cost me anything. She's been able to pay her own bills the whole time. I've never had to pay for anything for her. I get to do whatever I want without any thought of her whatsoever. What kind of marriage would that be? There's people who want a Christianity like that. I get to have a Savior, and He doesn't cost me any time, doesn't cost me any money, makes me look a little better. That's not Bible Christianity. Bible Christianity is we are so trusting of Him and so identified with Him that the world says, you're His voice. And they start trying to silence His voice by dealing with us. We ought to be so representative of our Savior We'd be like the Antiochs. The Antiochians are called Christians. So they, they complied with his command. And what Jesus had said is when you're persecuted, rejoice. You know how they rejoiced? They believed him. They believed by what they had suffered for him that one day in eternity there would be a compensation. He said it will be worth it when we see our Savior. And then their contentment, instead of saying this ain't right. We're doing what's right and look how the government's treating us. We're doing what's right and look at how the religions are treating us. Not... I'm just preaching to me. How many of you get offended when people don't respond to the truth the way you think they should? Yeah, that's why the Lord put these commands in here for us. You know, I go and give somebody a gospel track out of love and they treat me like I'm trying to spit on them. That's offensive. But the Lord said, rejoice. Be exceeding glad. And you know what they did? They just obeyed him. They said, what an honor to suffer for the Lord. Then look at verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. What effect did the invoice of indignation have on their preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? It solidified it. How about indifference? People say, we're not going to believe you, we're not going to reject you, we don't care. The Bible says they continue to do exactly what they were doing before, daily, in every house and in the temple, meaning privately and publicly. Which is best, to preach in a public forum or one-on-one privately? Yep. Which is best, house-to-house or an evangelistic venue? Yep. Which is best, your personal testimony or gospel track? Yep. <laughs> you know what's happened in our world? And I'll stop with this in just a moment. We see the indignation. We say, now's not a time to be preaching the gospel. Well, yes, it is. It's always a time to until Jesus comes. We find the indifference. We say, people aren't listening. They're not believing. Daily, in, the house, in every house and in the temple, they cease not. Meaning, this is the voice of integrity. They said, we're going to do what's right no matter how the world is responding to us. Because we're doing what is right for him. It's not about them liking us. not about them wanting us. We are doing this for his sake. We're teaching and we're preaching for his sake. You with me this morning? There was a voice of illumination. God spoke. And when God spoke, there was a voice of indignation in response. Don't tell us that. (laughs) Then there was a voice of indifference. Well, if you do tell us that, we're not going to believe you. We don't know if you're telling the truth or not. And then there was a voice of integrity. He said, well, whether you believe us or not, 
whether you persecute us or not, our Savior is worthy of our obedience. We're going to keep telling you about him.